Let's read. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might rain, might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Emily. Morning, everybody. Good to see you. If I don't know you, if you don't know me, my name's Alan. Um, I'm one of the elders um, in the church here in Village. I'm uh, primarily over in East, though, um, but there's occasion, occasions whenever I'm over here in South um, like this. Not usually whenever your pastor has broken his ankle, but um, that's kind of where we're at at the minute. Um, and just before I start into this passage in James 5, we're, we're finishing off the book of James today. We've been in it for the last few months. Um, I should say that the there are maybe a few people in the room who've heard this sermon preached. I apologize for that. Um, I, I know there are a few of you who were in East as we finished off this uh, a few weeks ago. So uh, weeks ago. So I'm sorry about that. Um, Ailey said to me, uh, she was one of those people, and Ailey said, don't worry, I, I can't remember it anyway. It obviously wasn't that memorable. So uh, ho- hopefully the other three who, who have been won't remember either. But um, I want to start this morning by asking you, what's the most bizarre ending to a letter that you've ever heard or read. Most bizarre ending to a letter. Let let me read one to you that all of you in this room will know. You'll know it. Whenever I say at the end who it is, you'll know who that person is. Uh, But you maybe won't remember the end of the letter. It's bizarre. But listen to this. This is what it said. Believe me, I'd like to listen, but it doesn't work. Because if I'm quiet and serious, everyone thinks I'm putting on a new act and I have to save myself with a joke. And then I'm not even talking about my own family, who assume I must be sick, stuff me with aspirins and sedatives, feel my neck and forehead to see if I have a temperature, ask about my bowel movements and berate me for being in a bad mood until I just can't keep it up anymore. Because when everybody starts hovering over me, I get cross then sad, and finally end up turning my heart inside out, the bad part on the outside and the good part on the inside, and keep trying to find a way to become what I'd like to be and what I could be if, if only there were no other people in the world. Yours, and then the person who wrote the end of that letter. Anyone know who it is? It's Anne Frank. It's Anne Frank's diary. She's the person who wrote that letter, that diary entry. And and knowing that, knowing her context, 
helps us to understand why he would say something like, I wish there was no other people in this world. Because she was someone who suffered greatly, massive oppression from people in this world. And so understanding the context actually helps us understand why she would say what she said. And as we come to the end of the book of James, here's the thing. James wants us to read James chapter 5, 13 to 20 in the context of everything else that he's been saying in this letter. He doesn't want us to read it out of context. Because if we do, if we just drop in, the danger is that it'll just be really confusing. It'll seem bizarre. It'll leave us with lots of questions. It could even, if we read it out of context, it could lead us down a very harmful or hurtful road. And so it's important to understand the context, just as it's important with Anne Frank's diary to understand the context too. And that's why as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to look at it in light of everything that we've seen over these last few months. Remember why James is writing. He's writing to a group of Jewish Christians with a genuine concern, a concern that they would wholeheartedly live out their faith in Jesus. He really cares about them. He calls them countless times in this letter, brothers and sisters, beloved. He said back to them in chapter 1 verse 18, he said, you've been given this new life of faith in Jesus. God chose to give it to you by his own will. A new life in Jesus means new living for Jesus. James wants the faith in their hearts to be evident in the fruit in their lives. And so all the way through this book, James has been instructing them on on what living out this faith might look like. How to show that their faith in God is genuine by their works, by the things that they do. He says, don't live in that way. That's not you anymore. Don't show partiality because that's not what God has shown to you. Don't ignore the needs of others. Don't speak evil against others. Be truthful in the words that you say. Don't make yourself the center of all of your plans because it's God who's the one who's in complete control. Don't cling to your money like your life depends on it. But instead, live like this. Live in these ways because That's the way that you demonstrate that your faith in Jesus is genuine. All the way through, we get this avalanche of practical instructions. Because James knows that the problem with these Christians is that they are not living out their faith. They're prone to wandering. They're being, as he says, like a a double-minded man split in their allegiances. They've got God on one side and they're living for the world on the other. Living for God on a Sunday but then living for the world the rest of the week. And James says, in order to fix that problem, because that's not the way it should be, you need to humble yourself before God. You need to ask for his wisdom in your life. You need to look in the mirror of God's word and realize where where the blemishes are, where the impurities and imperfections are. And in order to fix those things, you need to ask for God's help. That's the only way. Remembering that God opposes the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. He's a God who gives generously to all without reproach. If only we would ask him. Humble yourself before the Lord, James says, and he will lift you up. He will do the work in you to make you more like Jesus. He will give you a faith that works. That's James's big message in this book. And here as he signs off his letter in verses 13 to 20, he says, know this, to wrap all things up, know this, a humble person is a prayerful person. A humble person is a prayerful person. We demonstrate our humility in God, our humility by coming to God in prayer. We receive God's grace and wisdom in our lives to help us live this life of faith when we humbly ask Him for it. And if you remember one thing this morning, remember this: a humble person is a prayerful person. In every season. In every situation, prayer is something you can always do. And prayer is something that's always a good thing to do. Look what James says in verses 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Which, knowing the context of this book, we know that these people are suffering persecution for following Jesus. It's tough for them. Well, James says, here's what you need to do. Pray. Are you happy? Pray. Praise God. Are you sick and in need? Pray. Do you need to confess your sin? Pray. God wants you. He welcomes you. He invites you to come before him in prayer in all circumstances. When you're sorrowful, suffering, celebrating, sick, or in sin, James says, humble yourself and come before the Lord in prayer. Don't let any circumstance stop you from praying. Because in order to live this life of faith, you need God's grace at every moment and in every way. And here at Village, we want to cultivate this culture of prayer and dependency on God for all things. It's one of our core values as a church. It's why we have things like the prayer and worship night or we we have our prayer gatherings every other Monday on Zoom. We have those planned prayer times. But we also have impromptu prayer times as well, maybe in our MCs or in our core groups together. We want to come before the Lord and acknowledge that he's the one who's in charge, that we depend on him for all things in our lives. And so James's closing instruction to these Christians is this. In every season, in every situation, Humble yourself before God in prayer. Now, this passage, it throws up lots of different questions about prayer, about sickness and prayer, about healing and prayer. It's been said that this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to get to grips with because of the, the harmful ways or the wrong ways that we could maybe go with it if we take it out of context. And what we're going to try and do this morning is we're going to answer some of those big questions that this passage throws up in the context of everything, that, uh, everything James has been saying up to this point. And here's one of the first questions that you maybe had. Verse 14. Why call the elders to pray over the sick person and anoint that person with oil? 
Why is that instruction to call for the elders? Well, the elders are the pastors in the church. They are appointed as God's shepherds of the flock to care and to lead the sheep. And they are under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And a big part of what the, the responsibility or the role of an elder is, is to minister God's word and to pray for the people. The Bible tells us that. And at Village, we have a plurality of elders. So myself, Andrew, John, who you've uh, seen last week, Thomas and Nick, who've been around as well, maybe here in South. Uh, we are the elders in Village. And a big part of what we do is we pray. When we get together, for, uh, we pray for you as members. When people in our church family are sick, we pray for them. Sometimes we pray with them as well. And in this context, the reason the person is to call for the elders to come and pray over them is probably because it isn't easy or it isn't even feasible for them to gather physically with other people. Maybe they're too weak or their sickness is too severe. They're bedridden with this illness. Whatever the case is, we can safely assume that this person is in special need because of their sickness. And so the elders go to them to be with them and to pray over them. Notice that the onus is on the person who's sick, though, to call for them. It's not that the elders know that they should go to them or that they're the ones who, who take the kind of initiative in this. It's, it's the person who takes the initiative and calls for them and asks for them to come and pray. That's important. Now, what about the oil? Well, we can't be 100% sincere about that, but I think we can safely say what it's not. Uh, it's not that the anointing with oil is a sacrament that God initiates in Scripture, such as baptism or the Lord's Supper. It's not that. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, they have uh, taken this uh, to be kind of one of their rituals that they have. So uh, the, um, it's called extreme unction or, or the last rites, this anointing of oil on the sick person. Uh, and they would take that as a sacrament, one of their holy sacraments. But people would say that they've taken what James is saying here out of context. So we don't believe here at Village that the oil is sacramental. It's not that. And it doesn't seem that the oil is medicinal either. Because um, really, why would they call for the elders to come to give them some kind of medicine? You'd really think that they would call for a doctor, wouldn't you? But the oil, it doesn't have any supernatural power to heal them. They anoint the person, do you see, in the name of the Lord. So the belief is it's the Lord by his spirit, his power, who is working to bring about the healing, not the oil. So I think the best thing that we could say here, the best understanding of this is that it's symbolic. It's symbolizing the special concern that there is to bring this need before the Lord. Symbolizing God's anointing with his spirit of healing on that person. Now, would we anoint with oil here at Village? Yes, we may. The elders have done in the past. We don't see why not. But that's almost not really the point here. The point here is that we would expect that in a serious situation, in a time of serious need, our members would ask us as elders to come and pray. And we would. And we have. It's not that the elders possess any kind of special powers or additional power that uh, ordinary members don't have. 
or, or that the prayer of faith from the elders is a guarantee of a positive response to the request, that the person will definitely be healed of their physical sickness. That's not what this is saying. And it would be dangerous for us to think that. Harmful and hurtful potentially as well. But what is clear is that in certain circumstances and with a particular need, the elders have a unique role in praying for the people. Now, another question that you might ask is this. What does this prayer of faith in verse 15 actually look like? What does it look like? And, and it kind of, it sort of seems in verse 15 that uh, James is saying that the prayer of faith will always make the sick person well. Is that right? And another question that might come from that then is, does that mean that if the person isn't made well, that the prayer offered wasn't a prayer of faith? Was the faith of the one praying or the faith of the one being prayed for not real faith, not genuine faith? Was it not strong enough, maybe? Well, here's why context is everything. Because what we know to be true is this. God doesn't always cure us of our physical needs right here and right now. And a prayer of faith, especially when it comes to physical healing, it cannot possibly be a prayer like this. God, please cure me of this illness right now or else. Now, we may never say that. We may never say those words, but that might be what is in our heart. Or we might pray something like this, God, please heal me, and if you do, I'll make sure to do this for you. Again, we might not say those words, but it might be what is in our heart as we pray. And that's not a prayer of faith. That's a prayer of demand. And as Christians, our faith isn't in the definitive and immediate healing of our physical bodies. Our faith is in God. The one who can bring healing the one who does bring healing, but ultimately the one who promises that for all those who trust in Jesus Christ, there will come a day when these physical bodies that we live in, these physical bodies that right here and now are decaying and wearing out because of sin, these bodies will one day be healed fully, made new. We live by faith, knowing that our bodies will be raised up to new life in Jesus. Life without sickness or pain or suffering. Life for our bodies will one day be perfect forever. And so here and now, as we live in these bodies, a prayer of faith might say something like this. God, please cure me of this illness, if it is your will. Lord, please take this away from me, if this is your will, but if it's not, help me to trust you in it. Help my faith in you to grow deeper in this. Help me to look forward to that day, Lord, when I won't suffer with this anymore, when I will have a new body, a perfect body, forever in glory with you. Help me to look forward to that day, Lord. Lord, give me grace today to get through this. Remind me, Lord, that your mercies are new for me every day. If you pray in faith like that, God will answer that prayer. 
And if it's God's will to heal you physically in that moment, well, he will. He will give you what you need. But if it's not his will to physically heal you, then he will give you more grace. He will give you what you need to get through it. This is a biblical truth. This is what the Bible says. There are examples in the Bible of people who are praying to God, asking either for healing or deliverance in their time of need, and it not coming maybe the way they would have hoped for, but them trusting God in it. Think of the Apostle Paul. You can think of 2 Corinthians 11. He has what what he calls this thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know if that's a physical thing, but more than likely it was. And it's hampered him for years. And it says in 2 Corinthians 11 that he prayed three times that the Lord would take it away from him, that he would be relieved of it. But it wasn't taken away. And what did Paul hear the Lord say to him as he prayed? My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Think of Jesus even in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed in faith, Lord, if there's any way for this cup of wrath to pass over me, if there's any other way, Lord. But here's his humility. Because Jesus said these words at the end of his prayer, but not my will, but yours be done, Lord. See, a prayer of faith is one that acknowledges and trusts the object of that faith. It's nothing to do with the strength of our faith. It's all to do with the strength of the one our faith is in. Trust in him and what he is like. And throughout his book, James has mentioned things about God which would inform this prayer of faith that we might pray. Think back to chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. A prayer of faith asks God without doubting because we trust that he gives generously to all without reproach. Chapter 117 says, A prayer of faith knows that every good and perfect gift is from above. Chapter 4, 6, and 7, A prayer of faith is offered in lowliness and humility before God, knowing that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Chapter 4, 11, A prayer of faith knows that there is only one who has the power to save and destroy. Chapter 5, verse 11, a prayer of faith trusts that the Lord is compassionate and merciful to us. And it's not just the book of James that informs a prayer of faith. The whole of the Bible gives a vision of who God is and what God is like. Because we're prone to wandering from the truth about God, aren't we? We're prone to seeking earthly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. Which is why if we are to be a people who pray in faith, We need to be immersed in God's word. We need to bathe in his wisdom daily. Because then we will come to God in prayer on his terms and not on our own. We'll come to God trusting that his ways are perfect and that he's always working for our good, even when everything else in life tells us to think the opposite. We'll come to him in prayer knowing that he's the one in charge And that he knows what he's doing, even when we don't. And there will be occasions in life when praying in faith is so difficult to do. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's difficult family circumstances. Maybe it's financial struggles. 
There could be things happening in life right now for you. You're in this world which might make you question whether God really is in control or whether God really is working for your good. But a prayer of faith acknowledges that it's God's will that must be done. And it's God's will that is best for his people. When we pray in faith, our primary concern won't be for our immediate earthly circumstances to change. We pray for those things, and it's right to offer them to the Lord, to petition him in those things. But our primary concern will be to trust God in all that we go through in life. Our primary concern is that we wouldn't wander away from him or that our view of him wouldn't be warped or distorted in light of the things that we're going through. That we'd be able to go on living by faith in him. And I think God, by his grace, he gives us three things to help us to pray in this way. He gives us his word, he gives us his spirit, and he gives us each other. We can pray God's very words that we have when we have nothing to pray for ourselves. Romans 8 as well tells us that the very Spirit of God is praying for us, even in our weakness, when we don't know what to pray for. And when we are struggling to pray in faith on our own, we have others around us, brothers and sisters, who will pray for us, pray with us. I remember a few years ago, my wife Jane and I went through a particularly difficult family situation And Jane and I, at the time when it happened, were devastated. And we had let a few people know, a few friends know. And and we called one friend, and he prayed for the circumstances to change. And he he prayed that God would, would intervene and work in them. But I remember his prayer because he said these words. And this was kind of the overriding message in his prayer, I suppose. Lord, I pray most importantly that Jane and Alan will remember that you're always good you're always with them, and that you're always for them. You're always good, you're always with them, and you're always for them. See, the primary concern of my friend's prayer for us is that Jane and I would cling to the truth about God, that we wouldn't let our circumstances pull us away from him or wander away from him, but that we would trust that he is always good, always with us, and always for us. You might have wondered in verse 15 whether the illness that James is talking about in this passage is connected to sin. There's quite a lot that's mentioned about sin and sickness together in this. And the question we might ask is, is the person's illness a direct consequence of their sin? And this is where context is so important again here because In this context, as we read it, it seems like this person's illness is connected to their sin. Now, that might be a controversial thing for me to say or for us to think about. And we know that that's not always the case. And this is why context is so important. There's not in every situation, in every circumstance, where we could draw a direct line from someone's sickness to their sin. That's not what we're meant to do here. And and that's biblical as well, because remember whenever Jesus was with his disciples and and they see a man who's born blind on the side of the road and they ask Jesus as they walk past, who sinned for this man to be born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? 
And Jesus replies, neither. No one has sinned. You think of Job. Job's already been mentioned as an example by James earlier in chapter 5. And he was a man who suffered greatly, but his suffering was not a consequence of his sin. His friends came to him and they were saying, Job, you surely have done something here to cause this. What is it that you've done? How have you sinned before the Lord? But he hadn't. He was innocent, blameless. And so we cannot and we should not say that every sickness and illness is a direct consequence of a person's sin. It's not helpful to say that. It's harmful to say that. It's not even right to say that. But on another level, all sickness and illness in this world is a consequence of sin. The world God created in the beginning before the fall was a world without sickness and illness and decay because it was a world without sin. It was perfect. And there are obvious times when sickness or illness can be directly caused by someone's sin. If I was to go home today after our gathering here and I get overly angry and in my anger I punch the wall, in doing that, I'm probably going to break my hand. I probably won't do very much to the wall because I'm not that strong. But if it's a concrete wall, I would probably break my hand. And for the next six weeks, as my hand is in a cast, that is a reminder, a physical reminder of my sin. A consequence of me getting overly angry and overreacting. Some physical pain is an obvious consequence of sin. And in this context of James 5, it would seem that the person's illness is a consequence of sin. And there's enough in these verses to say that. And this is biblical as well. Because think of the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. This is a church who are in a terrible way, complete disarray. There's a lot of similarities here actually in what they were doing to what James is saying to these Christians to, to be careful about. Because in that church, there were divisions. In that church, the wealthy were neglecting the poor. People have been taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And here's what Paul says to them in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 11. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Their sickness and even death was a direct consequence of their sin. Can God in his grace give us times of weakness and even suffering to help us see sin in our lives? Yes. Can God in his grace give us times when we are brought low so that we recognize that there is maybe something we need to confess to him? We humble ourselves and we come to him. Yes. The Bible says there may be times that is the case. James 5 tells us that. Because what is James's ultimate concern in this whole book? That the person in that moment of pain and weakness and suffering, what would they do? They would humble themselves before the Lord in prayer. They would return to God, confess their sin before him. And if they need, they would ask the elders to come and pray for them. That they would confess their sin to them or to others. And they'd pray in that moment in confidence, knowing that God offers forgiveness and healing 
Look at verse 16, because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. James's ultimate concern throughout this letter has been that wayward, wandering Christians humble themselves before the Lord and return to him so that they would wholeheartedly live out their faith in him. That's been his primary concern in this book. And here's where knowing the context, it it helps us understand why James then uses the example of Elijah in verses 17 and 18. Because Elijah's primary concern for his people is the same concern that James had for these people, that they would stop wandering away from God and return to him. Look with me at verse 17 and 18. Let me read it. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah is a a man in the Old Testament, one of the prophets, and he lived a pretty remarkable life. Some of the things that he did were incredible. But James says, if you're a Christian this morning, here's the incredible thing. Your prayers are as powerful and effective as his prayers. You can read about Elijah and what he did in 1 Kings 17 and 18, but basically, God's people have wandered away from him, and Elijah prays for them that they would come back to the Lord but he prays that God would stop it raining for three years. And and God does that. It didn't rain in the land for three years and six months, and it causes a massive drought. The people are suffering physically because of their thirst. And why does Elijah pray for that? Why did God answer that prayer? Because God's people have turned away from him, and he wants them to come back, to humble themselves, What they're doing, actually, the people, is very similar to what the people in James are doing here. They've wandered away from God. They're being like double-minded men. They're loving God on a Sunday, but loving other gods the rest of the week like Baal. God had given them life, and he blessed them richly. But they weren't living by faith in him, trusting in him, just like the people in the book of James. And so God sends a drought, and the people are suffering without water, And Elijah is desperate for the people to come back to God. He fervently prays that the Lord, uh, to the Lord that they would. And after some time they do, they do come back to him and God opens the heavens and it rains on the people. And it's a sign that they have repented. It's a sign of God's healing and his forgiveness. The story is spectacular. What God does through Elijah is incredible. But Elijah's primary concern in praying for those people, is that they would do what James wants these people to do. Draw near to God. Come back to him. See what James is saying? The prayers of a righteous person are focused on people who've wandered away from God, focused on them returning to him again. And James says these prayers, when offered in faith, are powerful and are effective. And if you're a Christian here this morning, The question is, do we have the same concern as James and Elijah for those who've wandered away from the truth about God? Do we often pray for others who've drifted from God? Are we as fervent in our prayers for them? Look at verse 19 and 20. This is the joyous moment when God turns someone from the error of their ways, when they come back to him. Look at verse 19. 
My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. A few weeks ago, I was away with a group of friends, um, a group of Christian friends, but there's one of the guys in the group who has wandered away from the Lord. In these last couple of years, he's just drifted from Jesus. And I'm not sharing this to, to claim any credit because I know uh, that it's only the Spirit of God at work in me which caused me to do this. But when we were away, out for a meal together, um, I had read this passage because I knew I was going to be preaching it. Uh, and this verse, these verses just popped into my mind. It felt like the Lord almost put it across, uh, across my mind and I felt God prompted me, God prompted me in that conversation to just let that person know that I was praying for him, continuing to pray for him, that he's often on my heart, that I often pray for him with Jane, and that I'm here to chat, here to have a conversation anytime he wants to. James says, pray that no one wanders away. And if you're someone who's listening this morning, you're here and you've had a conversation like that with someone, please hear this. That person is not being judgmental in what they are saying. That conversation that they are having with you is one that is motivated by love for you, care for you, a desire for you to know the truth and to come back to the Lord. That person knows what's at stake if you turn your back on God because they know that God is gracious and he's merciful and he's kind and he's standing ready, waiting for you to come back to him. He offers forgiveness to all of us through his son, Jesus Christ. We've all wandered away from him, but through Jesus' shed blood and through his body broken on the cross for us, a multitude of sins are covered. He died to make the way for us to be brought back into relationship with God again. If you're a Christian this morning, I want to leave you with this question. Who are you praying for right now? Who's maybe wandered away? That person who's in your heart or on your mind right now, will you pray for them this week? Will you commit to regularly praying for them? Maybe would you even let them know that you're praying for them? Start a conversation like that with them. Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Power to stop the rain for three and a half years. And power to bring a wandering sheep back into the fold to save their soul from death. As we get the landing gear out and the runway approaches here in the book of James, I want to wrap things up with just asking a few questions to leave you mulling this over. This practical book, it's been formative for me. It was for our, our church family in East, and I pray it is for you as well here in South. Challenging and formative in our faith. Here's the, the, the questions I want to ask. Are you not sure if you have this living faith? Are you not sure if you have it? Pray to God and ask him to give it to you. Are you unsure if you're living out this faith in every area of your life? Pray to God and ask him to reveal areas of sin in your life which you maybe need to confess to him today. Are you struggling in a very specific circumstance? 
potentially feeling overwhelmed by a situation in life, illness, mental health problems, financial difficulties, will you come to God and pray? Will you even, if you need, call on the elders to come and pray with you? Are you struggling to maintain perspective right now? Will you pray to God and ask him to give you a true vision of what he is like? Are you needing to confess your sin today? Pray in the knowledge that when you do, when you come to the Lord, you humble yourself, you confess your sins to him, he is patient and kind, and he is forgiving. James wants you to know that there are no circumstances, no situations which should stop you from coming to God in prayer. No situation which should stop you from humbling yourself before the Lord and allowing him to raise you up. So when you pray, will you pray in faith, knowing what God is like? Knowing that he is always good, that he's always with you, and that he's always for you. God will help, and we can trust that God will help in the best way for us. Let's pray in all circumstances of church family. Let's depend on God in all situations. And let's pray in faith, asking that God's will would be done always. Let me pray for us now. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that in your word, you give us a true vision of who you are, what you're like. You reveal yourself to us, Lord. We thank you that we see your goodness and your grace, and your glory, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that even as we go through difficult things in life, as we go through uh, testing circumstances, Lord, that our vision of you would be informed by your word, not by this world, not by our feelings or our emotions, Lord. That we would trust that what we read of you in your word, what we know to be true of you, is the truth, Lord, something that we can cling to in all circumstances. Lord, I pray that today, if there is anyone who is suffering, that they all come to you in prayer. If there's anyone who's struggling with a situation in life, Lord, they'll come to you in prayer. They'll ask for your help, Lord, today. Lord, that they all know that you're with them, They'll experience your goodness and your grace today, Lord. I pray they'll know that sense of you lifting them up, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we look to you, we'll look forward to that day whenever these physical bodies that we live in will be made new in Jesus Christ. That we'll be raised to new life in him without any sickness or suffering or illness, no pain. Every tear will be wiped away, Lord, and we long for that day. Thank you, Lord, that we have that living hope in Jesus Christ. And I pray we will cling to that today as well, Lord. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who, as we've gone through this series in the book of James, if they're feeling lowly today, feeling maybe trapped in, their, in, this, in the sin that's in their lives, Lord, they'll know that they can come to you today, that you're standing with open arms, ready to welcome them back, and that... Because of Jesus Christ, his death, 
and his shed blood covers a multitude of sins and that there is forgiveness in him. I pray that today they'll know your love and your acceptance, Lord, and that they'll trust that in Jesus Christ uh, they can um, continue to live out this faith that they have in you, that they can start maybe even today, Lord, this, this journey of faith with you. We thank you that you're good, Lord, you're always with us, and that you're always for us. And we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.